Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode of Into the Night was made possible by the unwavering support of our dedicated Patreon donors. Their generosity allows us to delve deeper into the mysteries that await us in the dark world of Five Nights at Freddy's. If you are captivated by the secrets we unveil and wish to be a part of our journey, we invite you to explore our Patreon page. By becoming a patron, you not only get behind-the-scenes insights, bonus content, and special perks, but you also play a vital role in sustaining the future of this podcast. Visit the link provided in the description below to learn more and join our community of Avid Night Explorers. Hello, and welcome to Shadow Scrying, the official sister series of the Into the Night podcast. As always, I'm your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. Tonight, I want to take a moment and express gratitude. With Thanksgiving around the corner, it's refreshing to find a bright spot in an era where much of what comes from Hollywood or AAA game studios fall short, either underbaked, underwritten, or just simply poorly executed, the Five Nights at Freddy's movie managed to sidestep those pitfalls, focusing on the core tenets of a great franchise film. Fun, fan service, and making the viewer feel good while watching it. As of recording, it is approaching a $260 million box office figure. Five Nights at Freddy's is on the verge of becoming the highest grossing horror film of 2023. It might have even surpassed that mark by the time this episode airs. To think that this small little indie game, what was simply a last-ditch effort to continue a passion and a dream, resulted in not just a multi-million dollar franchise that captivated millions, but a multi-genre series that has now touched almost every cornerstone of modern-day media. Finance of Freddy's isn't now just confined to PCs. It's on every single console. It's on the end caps of bookstores as New York Times bestsellers. And now it's on the silver screen as one of the biggest movies of the year. I often say this whilst reminiscing about the golden days of when Scott Cawthon was tooling around with his playground of abandoned pizzerias, haunted animatronics, and his macabre storytelling. But while FNAF is many things, one thing it often goes unrecognized as is a modern-day equivalent of the American dream. The idea and concept that if you put it all your effort on something you love, you pile on the responsibilities to create value for people, whether it be a product, good, or service, you can make it big. I'm not saying that luck wasn't a part of FNAF's success. But I am also saying that failure wasn't either. Scott Cawthon faced 
numerous setbacks and rejections while developing other projects. Desolate Hope and Chipper and Sons Lumber Company are two prime examples of both overambition and failure to launch. And without making errors in the production and release of both of those games, without trying to create something and see what the end result would look like, he wouldn't have gained the wisdom and foresight from them to create Five Nights at Freddy's. I believe that that is one of the reasons why so many people, even those who don't prefer the series' current trajectory, whether that be from a storytelling standpoint or a noticeable tone shift towards a younger audience, people stay connected to it because of the inspiration it provides. Witnessing someone so genuine tell a story that emanates from their mind, heart, and soul is a rarity nowadays. And to see it blossom into such a success, one in which maybe we too can achieve if we follow a similar journey, leaves everyone feeling a little bit better about our current station in life, a bit more optimistic about our own goals in life, that we may too fight dragons and secure the gold it hoards. It's ironic given the tragic and morbid storyline the series is recognized for, and yet despite the series' undertones of its golden age, the storyline between 1 through 6, being that of heartbreak, misery, and agony, there is another side to that story, is there not? It's me, Michael. Michael Afton, as the series' protagonist, despite being a character of few words and fewer on-screen interactions, his story leaves that same hopeful message that mirrors what Scott's work did to resonate with so many people. Despite how many times you fail, despite how painful and unfair life and circumstances can be, you can persevere. You can alter the story being written and overcome your fears, your doubts, and your darkness. Taking responsibility for our lives and making something amazing out of our circumstances is what responsibility in human existence should strive for. Confronting the possibilities that manifest daily with the desire to make things better regardless of the burdens and life's unfairness. <laughs> in all honesty, I, I didn't expect to become sentimental while organizing my thoughts about the Five Nights at Freddy's movie. Yet, after my third viewing, despite my criticisms with the film, what touched me the most was the enduring theme of persevering through life's cruelties. Mike's journey, though simplified for the theatrical rendition, still roots itself in hope, responsibility, and the belief that your happiest days aren't behind you, and more are waiting to be made along the way. So, a big thank you to Scott... Blumhouse, and director Emma Tammy for recreating the experiences the film offers. While improvements can be made to it, knowing that Scott is already reworking the script for the sequel based on our feedback is encouraging. Despite the frustrations, the core reason why people love this franchise still shined through. With all that said, let's dive into our discussion of the film, shall we? Let's dive into the biggest debate for circulating within the fandom. The use of the movie as evidence for the game lore. Two major points fueled this discussion. Mike's younger brother, Bean, and Garrett, potentially identifying him as the crying child, and the revelation in the film that Vanessa, not Mike, is the child of Afton in the film universe. 
Firstly, when considering alternate universes AUs, like MatPat's timeline video, theirs is merit in using these alternate universe elements as inspirations for unknown aspects of the lore. The crying child's name has never been confirmed, and Garrett it might as well be the closest we've come to identifying him. It's reasonable for theorists and story crafters to use such information when displaying their interpretations. However, it's crucial for FNAF fans to recognize their biases and the assumption that everyone shares the same level of knowledge. Despite the movie's release, many will still refer to the crying child by his title, Evan, or Cassidy. While it may be frustrating, it is, until an official name is given, this aspect of the lore remains subjective to whomever is writing their interpretation. When it comes to Vanessa being an Afton, this is where we get more into the weeds of what we can and cannot do with supplementary material. Vanessa being an Afton has a large and wild cause and effect on the lore, as I've not seen many people recognize this, but William cannot be the father of Vanessa in the game universe given the age gap between the characters. Yes, Vanessa mentions that her father's name was Billy, or Bill I think, and that he was abusive and even manipulative in the games. However, one cannot ignore that in Gregory's tapes, which coincides with Vanessa's, whom we now have ample evidence to support that both were under the glip traps virus, Greg's therapist alludes the fact that Gregory stated he too suffered a terrible and abusive childhood, something that the therapist calls out as a falsehood. So if one of these people can lie to the therapist, that opens the door for both to lie. And even if Vanessa was an Afton, it couldn't have been William. Because let's take a generous assumption and assume Vanessa is 30 years old in security breach. William, more than 30 years ago, is dead and entombed behind the walls of Freddy Fazbear's Pizza during that time, which leaves pretty much two options left for her potential parent if she is an Afton. Either Miss Afton, for some reason, kept her married name and had another child, which is highly unlikely, or Michael, who by that point was possibly, and most likely, a rotting carcass, only animate through supernatural forces at play, somehow was able to help an off-screen love interest, conceive a child, and still chose to kill himself rather than stick around and raise his daughter. Ha! No! Uh, th this is why, when it comes to these AU storage for the FNAF universe, we have to be careful for what we pluck out and use in our interpretations. What is unique to one universe doesn't mean it can necessarily easily be transferred onto another. We already have the pre-existing examples of the novel trilogy to use as a basis for this, as anything that was transferred over from page to code were elements of the narrative that went over well with the fandom. William Afton, the Emily family, uh, the setting being in Hurricane Utah, but Elements such as the twisted animatronics that bury themselves below ground to resurface and hunt at night were not added. All of this is to say, use the material when it comes to theorizing any way you wish, but be aware that even Scott set expectations and boundaries in regards to theorizing 
with the novel trilogy and subsequent material by even saying, don't do it. Quote from Scott Cawthon himself, the book is not intended to solve anything. It is not intended to be a guide for the games or to fill in gaps. The games and the books should be considered to be separate continuities, even if they do share many familiar elements. So yes, the book is canon, just as the games are. That doesn't mean they are intended to fit together like two puzzle pieces. I would actually ask anyone wanting to read the books, read the book for the sake of enjoying the book, and don't try to solve anything. The book is a reimagining of the Finance of Freddy story, and if you go into it with that mindset, I think you will really enjoy it. End quote. ID Fantasy recently had a video about theorizing with the movie that I think to be a more healthy outlook on using it as material for theory crafting, that while it exists in separate continuities, we can use what is there to extrapolate on unanswered elements that don't have a pre-existing answer in game canon. For example, we know Mike to be an Atten in the games. This fact doesn't suddenly shift into ambiguity when the movie doesn't make him a full-blooded Afton. However, the use of dreams and how spirits can communicate through them, or how drawings are a way of reconnaissance for young spirits and ghosts, is something to be considered as these are elements that aren't fully explored and left purposely vague by the narrative in the games. To go even further on that, Michael Afton communicating through drawings in the survival logbook to most likely Golden Freddy can be elucidated further through the added context of the FNAF movie. And it's even important to recall that elements that were added in the expanded universe, quote-unquote, like Agni and Remnant, despite being key aspects to understanding the science and power scaling of the supernatural elements of the franchise, are only ever mentioned twice in the game series. Briefly noted by Henry on his file about Molten Freddy, and after Robotics Blueprint of the Scooper. Beyond that, it isn't even ever extrapolated on, because it isn't important to the game's narrative. That's all background, details for the setting, so the plot and the characters can act on it, not a core component that you are expected to know fully whenever a new entry in the series releases. If I were to give a recommendation, I would say that Scott said it himself best when he made his original post about the books when it comes to the movies. Look at this as a simple reimagining of the series we all love, and it come out of it with more fun and smiles and less of a headache when organizing your lore document. <laughs> Alright, I felt like I had to get that out of the way first. Now let's delve into discuss the movie itself, what you guys think about, my expanded thoughts on the film. Now that I can discuss it without having to worry about spoiling it, I'll start by saying that my initial critique about it being too short has aged so remarkably well. The satisfaction I felt when actors and actresses of the film began discussing the scenes that were cut, amounting to nearly, I think it said, like an almost an hour of the film being cut, oh, that was truly euphoric. I mean, the movie didn't necessarily need to be two hours and 30 minutes long, but an extra 30 minutes, a two-hour runtime, that would have undoubtedly have enhanced the pacing. A large chunk of the cut content 
that I was quite intrigued by surrounded Abby's babysitter, Max, and how she apparently had a lot more scenes in the film. When Mike first interacted with her in the film, it was supposed to be a larger conversation regarding his employment and how Abby was doing, instead of just ending abruptly as it did. Similarly, her death scene didn't have her just follow Freddy's spirit around and getting bisected immediately. Instead, the scene was a bit longer and Max had dialogue asking where his parents were, as well as searching the suits that were discarded to the side of Freddy before moving on to the brown bear himself. But without a doubt, the biggest and craziest of these cuts surrounds Mike's younger brother, Garrett. Apparently, there was another scene where Garrett's spirit, or at least an illusion of him, lured Mike to the pizzeria's entrance on the final night, setting the stage for William's grand entrance. Behind-the-scenes photos even depict Garrett holding a Golden Freddy plushie, and that even suggests a potential shift in the original script, especially since a lot of the plush props and Fazbear merchandise in the film are just actual toys you can buy. I don't think the actor himself brought the toy. It's completely possible that in the original script, Garrett was supposed to be Golden Freddy, for the character was conclusively made to be more reminiscent of the one you should not have killed, similar to how his character is presented in Ultimate Custom Night. Now there's more to this cut story, and I hope we get to see some of these scenes in uh, extras for the digital release, or discussed extensively in a director's commentary track. Doubly so, if there is the potential to having Scott involved in that commentary. I think I speak for everyone when I say that I would love his perspective on the filmmaking process. Now, a prevailing theory suggests that the extensive cuts were to avoid an R rating due to potential gore. After all, the most graphic content present in the film is the shadow of Max getting chopped in half. The Springlock scene itself has minimal blood in it, despite how horrid a bit graphics depicted in the games, it's arguably actually more gruesome in the games. Even the actors who make up the Wrecking Crew have released behind-the-scenes photos showcasing some really gory makeup on, implying that the original scenes were shot to be much more uh, brutal and graphic, and how the animatronics murdered them, instead of it all being implied or done off-screen or in the shadows. While this is a plausible explanation, I, I do believe there's more beneath the surface, I don't think the censoring accounts for a lot more of the plot prevalent material being cut from the film. It's conceivable that these editing choices were done by Blumhouse and Scott hedging their bets when it comes to audience attention spans and theatrical endurances. I mean, we as fans would have stayed there for a two-hour FNAF film, probably, but two hours and 30 minutes, th that could be asking a bit much. The average movie-going audience would probably have hesitancy to also try it out with that runtime as well, unless people would then be introduced to the franchise as a result. I prefer to give the benefit of the doubt here, and I assume that they aim for the vibe of old slasher and B-movie horror genres from the 90s, trimming it down to 90 minutes to create a fun popcorn flick, rather than a fully deep-dive narrative. I mean, my main critique still stands, the film suffers from pacing issues due to its shortened runtime, and I would have preferred it to be more reminiscent of the full-on FNAF story. I mean, yeah, cut things out like Michael being dead, but 
you know, things like Michael being the son of Apton is just such a great story idea that it sucks it's get cut out. And an additional 20 minutes, especially with some of the now known cut material, would have significantly benefited the overall experience. I have no doubt in my mind on that. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed turn-based squad-tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe, collect valuable loot, enhance the powers of your favorite characters, and level up to acquire new gear, unlock formidable attacks and abilities, and customize your characters with costumes inspired by the most infamous storylines. Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its six-year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL get an exclusive treat. You'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, and gear. Also, please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game, using the link in the description, and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gets you a ton of free starting loot, so you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Now, despite my overall enjoyment of the film, I also can't help but express some... What's the right word here? Disappointment. Sounds a little harsh, but I guess disappointment is the right word in the lack of certain fan service elements that were notably absent. While minor details like the absence of security doors can be overlooked, uh, the glaring omission of phone guide or training tapes was a significant letdown. We receive a facsimile of this through William's calls in a single solitary intro tape. It, it just falls short of the full-fledged inclusion fans might have hoped for, or at least I hoped for. I mean, a mere tease is better than nothing, but if you're gonna include it anyway, it should have been fully delivered. Another letdown that I noticed after my subsequent watchings was the absence of the Toreador March. While Talking In Your Dreams is a fantastic song, it gets repetitive, especially upon repeated viewings. It absolutely becomes grating. And the Living Tombstone's contribution to the end credits was greatly appreciated. That is a highlight of the film right there. But the iconic Toreador March is that is the theme song of Five Nights at Freddy's. That should have been present within the film itself. Reflecting on the animatronics as well, there were missed opportunities to showcase some of their more iconic traits. While we did witness highlights like Foxy running and singing, uh, Chicken in the kitchen, and Bonnie in the closet, not a euphemism, <laughs> several signature elements were absent. No power outages, no nose honk, no groaning or breathing emanating from the animatronics themselves, and not even the white pinprick eyes, a staple in the series' iconography. 
In so many ways in which I love this film, it occasionally feels more like an appetizer than a full course in terms of what a FNAF film could encompass. The lack of confidence, either in translating these series elements to film, or concerns about maybe meeting fan expectations, is apparent. And let's be brutally honest, the film can't claim to be doing its own thing when it draws so heavily from the series' established story, lore, and rules. Even the red eyes, often memed as they are, were not unique to the film, but lifted from Help Wanted. This film stands out as a monumental success for Blumhouse either way, proving to be not only a financial triumph for the studio, but also one of the few films this year that has not just recouped its investment, but turned a significant profit. In fact, recouping on your investment in Hollywood right now seems to be a rather success story now. So naturally, such success paves the way for a sequel. So, here's what I would like to see in the next installment. First, if the film is going to be similar to the games and ends up as a prequel like FNAF 2, I want to see the FNAF 2 animatronics behave iconically to how they appear in the games. Not saying they didn't do that in the first film, but once again, it felt more like a tease. I want them to go more all the way with it. Uh, let Balloon Boy pilfer the Night Guard's batteries. Witness Toy Chica losing her beacon eyes. See Toy Bonnie's eyes uh, shift from cute to disturbing in a heartbeat. Observe Toy Freddy indulging in some video game time, as ridiculous as that would be. And of course, include the puppet with its haunting music box. But most importantly, we cannot exclude the main thing from FNAF 2. The mask. We were not given any form of power management or secure doors in this film, which really sucked given how much fan service was present. But the mask is an iconic element of FNAF 2. When you think of FNAF 2, after you finish thinking about Twitchika's design and how much you want to dropkick Balloon Boy, you think of the mask. Actually, no, it's scratched that. You don't think of any of those three things. First, you think of the mangle. FNAF 2 absolutely needs to have the mangle in it, and it needs to do some mangle themes. I want to see that thing cling onto the walls and dangle off the ceilings. Also, feel free to experiment with how you make the animatronics uncanny on film. Unlike the original animatronics, all the toy robots have official voice actors and talented voices behind them. And since the toys already behave erratically before becoming possessed by a second set of children, this honestly could be the perfect way to introduce the more science fictional side of the series through these creepy personalities. <laughs> I think I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Regardless of where the film follows the FNAF 2 or FNAF 3 storyline, or does its own unique mixture of the series, there's unanimous agreement on one thing. The sequel desperately needs more of Matthew Lillard as William Afton. While Matthew's performance in the first film was outstanding, it left us wanting more. His portrayal is fantastic, but it was cut short and played it safe. We crave more of William on the big screen, especially if he's confined in that ominous spring trap suit. Speaking of which, if we are going to have more Springtrap, I'm sorry, there's no way around it. You need to make that thing as gory as you possibly can. 
I want the bloodstains. I want the guts and the gore leaking out and being wrapped up and tangled with the wiring and the metal endoskeleton. This thing is supposed to be an iron maiden of irony that is supposed to deal eternal torment to a man who was cocky enough to think he could always come back. Really sell me on that in the next outing. Oh, and uh, Fredbear's. Simple yet crucial. Some Fredbear lore would be fitting. Especially considering that unexplained nature of Golden Freddy in this first film, a bit more insight into Golden Freddy's background could add significant depth and help those wanting to know more of the series be introduced to it through this movie. Which, on that note as well, that is another thing I want to be present in the sequel. One of my biggest criticisms of Michael in the film had to do with the fact that the character isn't as inquisitive as I would have preferred. All the lore and mystery is just exposited onto him through Vanessa. I honestly hope she doesn't wake from the coma next movie, <laughs> because I would I would prefer it if we, through Mike, can piece together the mystery through honest investigation rather than someone who already knew all the answers slowly drip-feed us the solutions. The series itself is renowned for its complicated lore that is just as fun as it is frustrating to piece it together. That aspect should be represented on the big screen as well, especially from the character who effectively acts as our point of view, you know, vicariously. In conclusion, the finance of Freddy's movie, despite its successes, leaves me with a mix of admiration and yearning. The movie inspired by the indie game phenomenon has become a triumph. It's nearing the 260 million box office mark and will definitely claim the title of the highest grossing horror film of 2023. It stands as one of the best examples of how video game movies should be transferred onto the big screen. While the film has its imperfections, it still manages to capture the essence of perseverance and midlife's cruelties. Rewatching it for the third time, I found unexpected sentimentality into it. Despite complaints I have, the film retained the core message of overcoming darkness and finding hope in one's journey. I extend my gratitude to Scott Cawthon, Blumhouse, and director Emma Tam yet again for recreating these experiences on the silver screen. Despite room for improvement and the promise of a sequel with Scott already addressing feedback, the film resonates with many, inspiring optimism about our own journeys and goals in life. This film has basically been in the making for almost a decade. I'm happy to say, after not being that impressed with some of FNAF's current game projects, this was worth the wait. This has paid off, and I cannot wait for the next installment in this budding film franchise. And with that, I believe that brings us to a good stopping point for tonight's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It truly helps us broaden our reach. Consider following us on our Twitter at Fazbear Podcast, joining on our Discord, or supporting us on our Patreon or merch store using the various links in the description below. If you'd like to hear more about my overall thoughts on certain scenes, as well as the overall uh, narrative flow of the film, you can go over to our Patreon where there will be a free episode uploaded with me, Xanthus, and Avix uh, 
kind of discussed in the film in a rather intoxicated manner. Um, it's going to be 18+, plus, but uh, if you are interested in that, that will be available. You will not have to uh, be subscribed to the Patreon. It will be free to anyone to witness it. And as always, I have been your host, Nick. And I would like to thank you all once again for listening. Have a good night. And drive home safe. <laughs>